All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, or afternoon. I don't know where everybody's joining us from. Actually, it's afternoon here on the East Coast. I think I'm still a little, uh, uh, this daylight savings time is still messing me up like <laughs> maybe others as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this uh, Friday afternoon. Um, we're going to talk about the role of policy research and data in advancing health equity. Um, about a year ago, Melissa Bishop Murphy and I were speaking, but about a year ago, I had the opportunity to join Pfizer and a bunch of a, a number of other nonprofit leaders and that work in the health and health 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 healthcare data equity space. And we got to like really dive deep into this topic uh, for a while. And then we were able to follow it up with some research and a paper that um, was led by our very own Dr. Gary Puckerin. Um, but I'm getting a little bit too much in the details. My job here is to introduce the webinar, introduce Dr. Brian Smedley, who's a fellow of the Urban Institute, who's much better at this than I am to go ahead and lead our webinar. So without further ado, Dr. Smedley, I'll, I'll stay on, but Dr. Smedley, you go ahead and take over. <laughs> Thanks so much, Brandon. Uh, appreciate uh, your, your greetings. I also want to extend my greetings. Good afternoon, good morning to our audience, depending on where you are. Uh, it is a pleasure to join this important webinar on health equity action strategies following from the Health Equity Action Summit convened a little over a year ago. Uh, last year, it's hard to believe it's been that long, but I'm so grateful to see the energy and the products that have resulted from that very powerful gathering, which we'll talk about shortly. Let me begin by acknowledging our veterans as Veterans Day is tomorrow. I want to thank our veterans for your service. Thank you for all that you have done for our country, uh, protecting all that we value. Uh, and we look forward to celebrating many, many more Veterans Days uh, and ensuring that we are defending the freedoms that, that our veterans have fought for. So let me just begin by acknowledging the important work of the Pfizer Corporation and Pfizer's uh, multicultural action, uh, multicultural health equity uh, collective, which, had, which gathered in Atlanta uh, a little over a year ago to begin a conversation about what specific steps can we take to accelerate progress toward health equity. As you all know, unfortunately, health uh, inequities persist along the lines of race, ethnicity, as well as many other patient demographic factors. Our focus here is on how can we undo the decades-long, centuries-long inequities that we see in, in American healthcare systems. What I appreciate about the Health Equity Action Summit that Pfizer convened uh, last October is that we had many leaders from many different sectors, as, as Brandon indicated, nonprofit leaders representing consumer uh, interests, uh, patient interests, providers, and particularly providers serving underserved communities, the research and academic community, and the advocacy community, all of us that are engaged in the struggle to accelerate health equity. We don't often get together, uh, particularly across uh, disciplines and across sectors where we work. And so uh, last October's convening was an important opportunity for private sector leadership, as well as government sector leadership and uh, uh, private sector research and advocacy to come together to generate very specific action steps and strategies to accelerate health equity. That resulted in the Health Equity Action Guide. And if you have not read that yet, I want to encourage you to, uh, to uh, download that guide and read it. It contains a number of very specific actionable strategies with respect to research and data. Uh, the healthcare workforce, healthcare systems themselves, and uh, uh, and those who are setting policy uh, for how our healthcare systems operate. I want to give you a flavor for the level of excitement and energy that was in the room last October when this Health Equity Action Summit uh, was convened. And so we're going to queue up a very brief 
uh, videotape that captures some of the conversation, some of the leaders that were in that uh, meeting. But I also want to, again, emphasize that what was important is what has emerged from that meeting, the specific action steps uh, that were put forward in the Health Health Equity Action Guide and the actions that many of us are taking uh, in response to that call to action. First, though, let us give you a flavor for the uh, events in Atlanta last year. Why don't we queue up that videotape? is needed because our partners are telling us that it's needed. They told us that we can use our voice to really help amplify what's happening in the community around health equity and also to identify what more needs to be done. I joined today's conversation because there's still so much work that we have to do around health equity in the height of the quarantine that we knew all these issues persisted and existed, but you know, just as the summit is called Health Equity in Action, we're actually doing something about it. So actually hearing about practical solutions, uh, concrete ways to change patient and community healthcare, it's phenomenal to be part of this group. We talk about racial health inequities, but we don't talk a lot about the solutions. And so to be able to come to this session where there's so many different diverse perspectives, talking about what we can do about these racial health inequities, I feel like we can actually make a difference today. Thank you for that. As the link indicated, Pfizer.com slash the collective is where you can access the wonderful resources, including the Health Equity Action Guide uh, that was produced uh, following the Health Equity Action Summit. And that videotape gives you a nice sense of the flavor for the energy in the room. I personally was very honored to be in the same room with the leaders uh, that Pfizer gathered together uh, across, uh, again, many sectors and disciplines to convene this summit. Uh, and thank you, Roy, for inserting in the link, uh, a link to the action guide. Today, we're going to hear from two distinguished leaders on particular perspectives uh, that, uh, and issues that emerge from the action guide. But we also want to enter into a dialogue. So we invite you, the audience, to type your questions into the Q&A box at the bottom of your Zoom box. And we will be uh, periodically posing those questions uh, to our panelists throughout the next hour. Uh, let me begin by introducing our panelists. First is Melissa Bishop Murphy, Senior Director of National Government Relations at, at, at Multicultural Affairs at Pfizer Incorporated, uh, where she leads the company's overall federal and state government relations and public affairs strategy and advises leadership on current multicultural congressional and legislative issues 
and activities. Uh, she will be followed by Kalele Imiru, Vice President of the Center for Health Information Strategies and Services at the National Minority Quality Forum. We'll start with Melissa and then go to Kalele. Melissa, I'll let you take it away. Well, thank you, Dr. Smithley. Uh, if you'll cue my slides, please. Uh, well, uh, first of all, we want to thank the National Minority Quality Forum for this opportunity today to talk about the health equity in action. Uh, not only the summit, but also the actions uh, leading from the summit that's contained in the health equity in action guide. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, as you saw from the video, there was a, a tremendous amount of excitement about you know, achieving these objectives, and the, the objectives were twofold. We wanted to bring the thought leaders together to discuss and evaluate solutions to overcome these systemic barriers. Uh, we uh, talked about the, the problems of health inequities for many, many years, but we wanted to come bring all of the, the uh, ecosystem, if you will, together to talk about what are those solutions to uh, address systemic barriers. And we also wanted to uh, produce something tangible uh, for the community, uh, tangible, scalable solutions uh, to address health inequities across the entire healthcare ecosystem. We were pleased to uh, uh, be joined as co-conveners by the Morehouse School of Medicine, the National, National uh, Association of County and City Health Officials, the Symphony Foundation, uh, Dr. Smetley, and of course, the National Minority Quality Forum. And we really decided to focus uh, our work in four buckets, research and data, healthcare facility and healthcare delivery, healthcare workforce, and my particular sweet spot, policy. Uh, as Dr. Smetley uh, indicated and told you earlier, uh, Participants came from a wide range of the healthcare ecosystem, including uh, community-based organizations, hospital systems, legislators, other affiliated organizations, and, and of course, academia, because we can't uh, deal with um, uh, healthcare workforce without discussing academia. Uh, next slide, please. The summit was an overwhelming success. Uh, I don't know if you heard that sign in the voice of the attendees, but over 70% of respondents indicated a desire to stay involved and continue working on these issues after the summit last year. And we actually saw that come to fruition in the development of the uh, Health Equity and Action Guide. Um, one of the great things about the summit was that it was a cross-section of uh, it, uh, health, health industry leaders. Um, we had over um, 100 leaders uh, that attended and participated in the summit. Next slide, please. Again, the four areas were research and data, and we'll talk a little bit more about that today. Health facilities and health delivery policy and healthcare workforce pipeline. We felt that those four focus areas encapsulated the issues of, of health inequities. Next slide, please. So um, when we discuss policy, and this will be a, a, a large part of this discussion today, uh, a guiding principle was that uh, to achieve uh, health equity, policy must be effectuated at the local, state, and federal level, 
and that the policy must be multi-sector, meaning that it needs to impact a health envi environmental and economic. So we want to get to what we call those social determinants of health uh, in the policy that will be effectuated. Um, one of the uh, main uh, keys that came through was that policy uh, or equity needs to be the center of policy. So uh, the Century Foundation has a, a wonderful piece around the framework for health equity. It'll be part of the resources uh, after this uh, webinar, but it really talks about centering equity from the start of any policy formation that needs to be the guiding force. In addition to that, uh, we also saw that uh, community-based organizations need to play a very important role in policy development. I mean, the community-based organizations are those organizations that are providing the services now. They're in the community. They have trust in the community. They know the community. So we need to support those organizations through securing funds for them and also for uh, ensuring that they have the technical assistance. In addition to that, as we think about community-based organizations, we cannot uh, leave out our tribal and indigenous communities as well. And then finally, we felt that to, uh, po our policy needs to be focused on healthcare coverage and affordability. To achieve an, uh, health equity, there needs to be the expansion of healthcare coverage, and that includes expansion of Medicaid and the passing of the HEAL Act for immigrant families uh, as well. And to address those social determinants of health, uh, we discussed and uh, recommended that Medicaid 11 of 15 B waivers be used. Uh, those waivers will allow for, uh, to address things like environmental justice, to cover housing and food assistance. Uh, in addition, we cannot not talk about maternal uh, health. And certainly we believe that any focus on policy needs to start there as well to address maternal health disparities, include mental and behavioral health care changes in any policy reform. So I'm gonna stop there. Look forward to the discussion, Dr. Smedley, uh, and then addressing any questions that we ha might have around this area. Wonderful, thank you so much. This is gonna be a really rich discussion, I can tell. So let's turn to Kalele Yimiru. Thank you for standing in for Dr. Puckrin. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, didn't know if you have a, any. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Melissa touched on multiple points when it comes to health equity as it relates to data and how do we make data that's available more equitable so we can in turn use it to reduce the health inequities that exist, especially with impacts to uh, certain communities that are disproportionately impacted. So as you know, with National Minority Quality Forum, it's an organization that's been around for two plus decades based here in Washington, D.C. And the mission is to reduce patient risk and uh, ensuring optimal care for all focused in helping these communities. So for as long as the organization has been around, we have been collecting data, mainly claims data from CMS, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and using this data to be able to reduce the inequities that exist. So uh, we're an organization that is for the community and by the community and committed to helping improve the quality and outcomes. Uh, so when it comes to improving quality and outcomes for patients, 
in these communities, the data becomes very important. In fact, it's a critical piece of what we do. And we've got multiple centers at NMQF. Even the policy side can then use the insights so we can provide the data that supports that policy needs to be changed. Um, and we've got a community outreach group as well that looks at the data and then focuses in on certain zip codes with specific types of outreach to these communities. So we believe in gathering data to support planning and improving the access that exists. Even when it comes to innovative therapies, um, oftentimes these communities that need the therapies most are without access. So by looking and looking at the data, you're able to decipher where and how you go about providing access to those type of therapies and interventions at a community level that we believe is essential. So the data supports our vision. We hope to create a healthcare landscape where data-driven insights serve uh, as a guiding light, if you will, so we can create a healthier and a more equitable community. Um, and, and part of our mission is to provide this data-driven insights so we can reduce the patient risk, eliminate disparities, and, and uh, improve the quality and care and outcome for vulnerable communities. So there's a paper that put out um, called Optimal Intervention Systemic Drivers of Racial Health Inequities. And we have this, this is based on our community data lake that we've been collecting and that we have as a platform for use with organizations. And so I, I can uh, say a few things about that paper and it's based on how do we create equitable data and data sharing. So when you think about data, there's big data analytics. I mean, that's a word that's thrown around, but how do we take the big data analytics was specific to healthcare, all the data that's being collected, you know, Medicare, Medicaid included. That refers to collecting data, analyzing that data, and then interpreting this huge, vast amount of data so that you can uncover patterns and uh, these insights and, and trends. But all for you could study this data, then you could predict what can happen, what is happening and what has happened based on historical perspective, and then all for prevention of uh, these negative outcomes for healthcare. Uh, so when it comes to health equity, the big data analytics plays a crucial role. And the paper that's put out talks about how advocacy organizations face a huge challenge when it comes to implementing these big data solutions, largely due to cost. It costs money to acquire this data, costs money to store this data, it costs money to analyze this data using the uh, analytical softwares that are available. And now with the introduction of these large language models, AI and machine learning, the cost has gone up you know, uh, even more. So how do we collaborate using our community data lake how can we overcome these challenges and uh, provide that centralized repository of data sharing with analysis? And that's our commitment is um, we've built a, a community data lake. We're using that already to produce some uh, intelligent intelligence when it comes to health equity for insights. And we're partnering with organizations that don't have the ability to do that so we can provide this aggregated, diverse data and empower them to connect with their patients and contribute uh, to this health equity movement. 
Thank you so much, Kalele. So indeed, the National Minority Quality Forum is the probably the world's leading repository for data, particularly as it relates to equity in healthcare. So uh, very grateful for the work that uh, the Quality Forum does. And uh, regards to Dr. Puckerin, thank you so much for filling in at the last minute, uh, Kalele, and, and uh, thank you for that uh, wonderful overview. We're gonna start to move into some questions and into a conversation, a dialogue with our panelists. I wanna encourage our listeners and viewers to uh, use the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen to pose questions for our panelists. One person has done so already, and so we're going to try our best to get to all of the questions that are posed uh, to our panelists, including questions about data, uh, the issues that Kalele has just raised. So uh, please, at, at any moment, uh, drop your questions into, into the Q&A. We'll do our best in the remaining uh, 34 minutes to get to all of those uh, questions. Let me start with a policy question that I'll direct to you, Melissa, if I can. Uh, you, were, uh, you were outlining the fact that we need government at all levels, state, federal, local, uh, engage in, in comprehensive community-engaged, community-led policy strategies. And these need to be comprehensive, multi-level strategies, right? If you squeeze one end of the balloon, it's just going to press out at the other end. So we need to be attacking this problem very comprehensively. Which healthcare policies do you think could be implemented to establish a more equitable, comprehensive, and adaptable healthcare system? Thank you, uh, Dr. Smedley, for that question. Certainly, there are already uh, really great pieces of legislation that have not passed. And then there are there's legislation that has passed that st some states have not adopted. For instance, uh, the Affordable Care Act provided for, for Medicaid expansion. We know that access is the key to reducing health care uh, inequities. If all states move towards Medicaid expansion, we would see a reduction in health care inequities. There's also the Health Equity and Accountability Act that was introduced currently at the federal level that has provisions that would work to reduce health inequities. We have the Hill Act that I mentioned as well. I also talked about the use of 1115 waivers to address those social determinants of health issues. So we're creating programs that will address environmental justice uh, that will in, address food insecurities, utilizing mechanisms that are already available at the state level. But we also can't forget the local level where, frankly, a lot of the uh, work is being done. And so it's important for uh, policymakers, and specifically talking about legislators, and this is really a call to action to uh, local, state, and federal legislators to engage community-based organizations and community-based groups more and do that at the beginning. We're about to start a new uh, uh, legislative session across the, uh, the country on the state level. So as policy is being developed in January, are, are we talking to those community-based organizations? Are we having listening sessions in the community about particular pieces of legislation? Are we inviting those community-based organizations to the state capitals to uh, speak their truths, uh, to talk about solutions? Um, and frankly, um, we can definitely use the Health Equity and Action Guide that provides some common sense, immediate solutions to, uh, for policymakers uh, to address in this upcoming session. 
We know that anything on the federal le uh, level takes a long time. So I'm, I'm very encouraged to see the legislation introduced on the federal level. But we know that uh, it's a divided Congress. They're moving slowly. And we're wanting to see immediate action. The local level, the state level is where we can have an immediately uh, immediate impact if we engage. Thank you for that. And a related question, because you've highlighted the importance of community voice, community perspectives, informing policy. What are some ways to, inf to effectively involve and empower underserved communities in the early stages of, of policy formation? I, I certainly think that it goes both ways, right? I've been lobbying um, uh, over 30 plus years, uh, 25 of those with Pfizer. I will tell you that it, it's very rare to see um, community-based organizations at the Capitol. And if we do see them at the Capitol, they come for one day for that Capitol day. So what, what I would say, first of all, for the community-based organizations, get to know the uh, uh, legislators who are leading health committees, who are leading the budget committees. Have coffee with them when they're not in session, right? Uh, uh, introduce yourself, tell them about your organization, email them, send them send the legislators information about your organization so that when, when they're discussing healthcare policy, they think about your organization and ask you to be a part. At the front end, we always say, uh, uh, if you're not uh, at the table, you're on the menu. And so that that is really true. And that's why we I believe that there's been more health inequities than we necessarily needed to have. Get involved with uh, also uh, uh, organizations like the Medicaid department, right? They can act independently of uh, uh, having legislation from uh, the state or the federal government. They have mechanisms to address uh, community-based needs. Uh, they can do community demonstration projects using 1115 waivers. I'm working on an issue now here in Georgia in regards to uh, um, a gene therapy. And, and there are provisions where uh, these Medicaid departments can amend their state plans to do creative things. Uh, that's how we got 10 care, frankly. Uh, I mean, it was a big 1115 demonstration waiver. And, and now it's, it's, it's just common that you have a, a, a managed uh, Medicaid, uh, but that was a, a demonstration waiver, frankly. So there are small things and big things that community-based organizations can do, as well as legislators can do to bring, to make sure that uh, uh, these community leaders have a seat at the table, but we just have to start doing them. Talk is cheap. The time is now, or the time, frankly, was yesterday, but it's never too late. Uh, like I said, we're starting a new legislative session in 2024 in every state. So let's be at the table. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, Klele, uh, you're, uh, you spoke very powerfully about data and the need for comprehensive, accurate data collection. If we're not collecting the data, we cannot know if we are solving these problems. One area of concern is, is the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning in clinical settings. How can we ensure that the increased use of, of AI in healthcare relies on data that is not racially or culturally biased? As the old saying goes, garbage in, garbage out, right? How do we ensure 
that these um, new tools, machine learning algorithms are being constructed in ways that enhance equity rather than increasing inequity? Yeah, I think that's an important question, Brian. Uh, and it's one, quite frankly, that worries me and we got to act on sooner than later. So if you think about the inequities that exist already, it comes as a result of you know historical and systemic uh, problems and issues that we've been grappling with in this country. But now as we move forward and as we think about solutions, if we have the same set of lens, we'll continue to uh, propagate and exacerbate the same problems that exist today. So coming to your answer, Brian, that one ways to be able to prevent that from happening is by allowing the data and, and, and the ability for organizations and communities to have an input to own that data and to be able to uh, have access to it. So when we, when we talk about data collection, it should be collect, collected at every community. It should They should have access to it. Every patient should be able to access their own uh, data. Um, the concern is, you know, there's data privacy, there's the security uh, portion, as well as compliance with all sorts of uh, regulations that are out there for maintaining this privacy and, and security for, for, for the data. But we can't put the security and the privacy over the actual problems that we're trying to solve. So I think we have to be able to meet and, and balance it out in a meaningful way that we're uh, making sure these patients are having access and, and uh, make sure where we're headed and, and, and the solutions are acknowledging so that we're inputting the right data, as you said, so that we can actually come up with the appropriate solution. Um, and, and that's it's a topic right now that's ongoing, um, but already we've seen with the use of AI and uh, it's already producing some problems. And, and it's as a result of the data that's being used to model and to study is not as it has biases built in, you know? And so, and, and that's something that worries me as well, Brian. Thank you so much. Oh, go ahead, Melissa. Add to that is that certainly policy can play a role. Uh, if we're able to develop policy that ensures that uh, the, uh, we're not getting the garbage data, right? Uh, that's being put in that ensures that there's equity in, in the data that's being inputted. Uh, we also need to talk, think about making sure we're getting that social economic uh, data in addition to that population data, uh, because that's where you're going to see uh, the disparities that, that you referenced uh, lately. So I, I would say to you that uh, uh, let's start thinking about developing uh, AI policy uh, that will ensure a health, uh, health equity uh, across the board. Wonderful, thank you for that. I wanna encourage our audience members again to type your questions into the Q&A box. We have a number of questions that are coming in, really outstanding questions. Let me uh, start with one that has come in 
Uh, and this speaks more to the issue of the burden of chronic disease uh, in particular populations. This uh, audience member writes, African-American men continue to lead the highest level of incidence of, chron of chronic disease and morbidity in key health indicators. Is there an effort to raise awareness and increase access to care to improve health outcomes for this target population? These health disparities are across all socioeconomic backgrounds. Johns Hopkins does have an initiative, the Black Men's Health Project, collecting data for uh, health data for 10,000 black men. So Melissa, clearly, perhaps both of you could comment on this question. Yes, certainly from, a, I, I can speak to what Pfizer is doing. Yes, Pfizer is a very focused on African American men, in particular in the area of prostate cancer. Um, uh, so we are uh, partnering with uh, organizations like 100 Black Men of America, uh, we're partnering with the uh, prostate cancer groups uh, to ensure that we're making sure that there's culturally sensitive and re relevant education information uh, for the men and, and not only for the men, but for the families, right? We know that African-American women make a lot of the healthcare decisions in the family. So we're, we're education is really what we're focused on. How do we get the uh, information out and making sure we get information out in a culturally sensitive uh, uh, way so that uh, the community can receive it and making sure that the messenger is appropriate because that's also very important. Pfizer can't be the messenger. The messenger has to be trusted sources in the community. Bob, uh, Ms. Bell, welcome uh, uh, the opportunity to talk further about how can we partner to uh, uh, get information out there and making sure it's the trusted voices who are getting that information out there. Absolutely. You've both emphasized accountability, which has been a real challenge in this work. So Kalela, let me pose this question to you. How can we improve, how can we help improve access to data for diverse community-based organizations with interest in improving community health? And I pose that in the, in the context of accountability because um, unless these community-based organizations have access to this data, it's hard for them to see beyond, to lift up the hood, so to speak. But then there are also our privacy concerns and other kinds of concerns. Can you speak to that that balance? Oh, absolutely. I think it's uh, one of the easier ways to do it is to already use a platform and infrastructure that's already meeting these uh, privacy and security concerns. So I can tell you, at the National Minority Quality Forum, we've built a data warehouse that I spoke to it earlier, and we're actually enhancing that and we're building a private cloud that this community data lake will 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 be supporting and and it's all in promotion of health equity. So the data lake will provide that curated information, that's intelligence and data that's that 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 is needed for a lot of the organizations and the patient. Uh, groups that we work with, so we could use that for advocacy uh, and for certain communication channels. So it's uh, a centralized repository, if you will, of healthcare data based on Medicare and Medicaid. So that has a ton of information that an organization or a smaller organization wouldn't be able to set up on their own, but they could use within partnership and collaboration with National Minority Quality Forum. I think that's one way to do it. Uh, um, and there's been other examples as well. When you've made data accessible, 
when you've partnered with communities that on their own may not be able to have this access or have have the 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 ability to go out and purchase and make sure the security and regulations are met. When you share, you end up with a better product and you end up uh, reducing health health disparities that exist. Thank you so much. Another uh, audience member writes, uh, along with addressing the social determinants of health, there's increasing attention being paid to the deleterious commercial determinants of health by the World Health Organization, Lancet, uh, et cetera. What's being done in this area in terms of research and policy in the United States? I post to either of either one of you. I'll start with that question because, uh, you know, Pfizer being part of Big Pharma and certainly being almost a 175-year-old company, um, uh, commercial determinants of health, uh, it's it showing up through our ESG report, our environmental, social, uh, and, and corporate governance report. So I think the first step that we're seeing around commercial determinants of health is opening the books, if you will, opening uh, 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 up to the the public what companies like Pfizer are doing. So what I would first say is to you is, you know, uh, we talk about having data. Really, these ESG reports are giving you that data that you need in order to develop the policy. Uh, around commercial, the commercial determinants of health. And if you look at the, those ESG reports, you'll see that the companies, companies like Pfizer are really trying to reduce their, their uh, carbon footprints. Uh, they're trying to do more in the health equity space. I know certainly if you look at Pfizer's ESG report, it certainly talks about what we're doing in health equity, uh, uh, what we're doing in terms of uh, reducing our, our our footprint that may be harmful to the environment. So what I will say to you is what I've seen personally is that this type of work is being done and being revealed through ESG. Wonderful, thank you. Here's another question that I think um, you both may have a, a take on. My organization works at the state and federal level and we have found that conservative policymakers don't seem interested in health equity initiatives, even in rural areas. Is there a language we can use to build uh, with this segment of policymakers? Let me just preface this question by saying we, of course, are nonpartisan here uh, uh, and take no political sides. But the questioner is asking, how do we engage all segments uh, of the political spectrum? Uh, and how can we engage uh, folks in particular in health equity initiatives in, in rural areas, opposed to, to either one of you? See, uh, that's a that's a really important question, Brian. And I, I sympathize with the, with the with the person who's asking this question because, like most things in this country in this, this in today's uh, world that we're dealing with, everything is becoming politicized. So the word equity now carries this sort of you know divisive culture. But when it comes down to it. What are we talking about? So I, I, there was uh, in the Journal of American Heart Association two weeks ago, I believe it was uh, October 17th, there was an article that talked about all the advancements we've made that just looking at the last 20 years between 2000 and 2020 as it relates to cardiovascular health. So they looked at cardiovascular mortality rates in the U.S. We've made it tremendous amount of innovation. There's all sorts of antihypertensives to protect your heart, blood pressure, kidney, everything. 
Now let's look at how that benefited the U.S. Did it was it equitable, or can we look at certain pockets, certain communities, certain zip codes to see who is not benefiting from these advancements that was made? And if you look at counties where there is a higher social vulnerability index, even when you you know when it's been adjusted for age and uh, everything else, the disparities were seen across the board so uh, it, it's yes we're making advancements in healthcare yes these all these innovations are being made but not everyone is benefiting from it um equally and that's what equity represents at least in my mind i think that's one way to take it to politicians and say here's where we want to be able to make policy so that people have access to these medications. People were not ignore, ignoring the social vulnerability index, which can accompany everything else. So I, I work in uh, uh, certainly very red states uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And to uh, piggyback on what you've said, I will say to the return on investment argument is one that uh, I has, has resounded with all legislators, but in particularly fiscally conservative legislators. Um, so I, I, this discussion has to be done to me as part of a larger coalition. Uh, certainly when you're uh, talking about return on investment in, in regards to health equity, uh, that means you need to have the data to document that, you know, the savings, if you did this, then this would happen. Ultimately, uh, legislators are responsible for one main thing, and that's a budget. And on the state level, the budget has to be balanced every year, unlike on the federal level. So they are ultimately concerned about cost and how do we pay for these things. And if we're paying for this, what does this mean in terms of the return on investment. So if you're if you're talking to uh, a, the, a fiscally conservative legislator, bring in the data, talk to the legislator who, who represents those rural areas. They have influence in the legislature. You, you cannot always be the spokesperson for your issue. And you may need to create coalitions and partnerships that might seem like, you know, they shouldn't be together. Thinking about the chambers of commerce, uh, can, uh, they can be a very helpful coalition partner as you seek to um, do expansion of access in the rural areas. I mean, certainly when you think about broadband access, which is very important uh, to uh, to ensure that their healthcare is being provided in those rural areas. Uh, you can think about those uh, uh, communication companies. So you. I think we need to step out and expand our lens when we think about health equity and health equity partners. Uh, that was the beauty of the summit. We brought uh, together uh, uh, everybody who's in the health equity, health ecosystem. So how can the hospital associations be a partner with you as a health equity leader or health equity champion? I think we need to really move from uh, being insular and who we think is a great partner with us to being more expansive and looking at other partners uh, in this health equity journey. Wonderful, thank you both. Uh, please keep your questions coming in. These are wonderful questions and we're gonna try to get to as many of them as possible in the time that we have remaining in this webinar. 
Here's a question, uh, an issue that I, I'm personally very concerned about. Uh, this uh, audience member writes, there's increasing pushback in some states by legislators and policymakers prohibiting the use of funds and education in health profession schools and hospitals regarding diversity, equity and inclusion, social determinants of health and health equity and related topics. Uh, there, this, oops, my screen is jumping around here. This is also leading to lawsuits. What is being done to address these troubling developments? I pose this to either of you. Uh, happy to, to take a stab at it. Certainly, there are um, uh, help. Uh, there are justice organizations that are challenging this uh, uh, pushback from um, legislators and, and how funds are being used, and, and you know anything that has diversity in it is it's being challenged. We're, we're seeing that a lot. Uh, but certainly, if you really look at the Supreme Court decision that's come down. There is some space for movement there. Uh, I am an attorney, but I, I, I'm not going to give any legal advice on this. But what I would say to there have been a number of papers since the Supreme Court decision that has provided a runway uh, uh, for organizations working in the health equity space. I'm certainly happy to share uh, 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 those as part of the resources that we'll leave behind with the National Minority Quality Forum. I, I, I will say to you that uh, this work is not dead as a resort, result of the Supreme Court decision. In fact, it continues to grow. Uh, so I, I think it, it uh, behooves all of us to uh, partner with civil justice organizations like the NAACP and others uh, who are really uh, diving deep into this and ensuring that um, uh, this work continues on. But we'll uh, definitely provide some other resources after the um, uh, after the webinar. Okay, let me let me add to that as well uh, to what Melissa said because if it's certain words that are you know people that that are having. And that people are having issues with if it's equity and then certainly we've seen it with uh education with uh, critical race theory or what's considered critical race theory and versus history what what we can do is certainly take that divisiveness out of it i think when it comes to the premise of intervening and whether it's cardiovascular mortality uh, or other disease states the vast majority agree on us as a society doing better, especially when we're looking at certain counties, certain communities. So let's then focus on the actual work that needs to be done. How do we expand access to not only these uh, more innovative therapies that are available, but to, to healthcare in general? How do we have more specialists in certain zip codes in certain communities? How do we promote healthy lifestyle choices so that there are no food deserts in, in the U.S.? Um, how do we address the environmental risk that further exacerbates these communities when we talk about air pollution, having access to clean water? Um, and looking at all the social drivers of health that we talk about, education, uh, employment, so all of these are weaved in and tied together. So if it's equity that people are having issues with, let's get down to the practical level and talk about how we can improve, uh, you know, what we need to improve. And then, and I think that focusing on that maybe may bring people around together. <laughs> 
Indeed, equity is a concern for all of us. We want equitable opportunities for everybody to achieve their best health status. This is not about diverting resources away from a majority group or special attention to special populations. This is about ensuring that all of us have equitable opportunities to achieve our best health status and diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are an important part of that effort. Uh, and so there's another webinar that we could perhaps hold on, on those issues <laughs> by itself, but thank you both for your responses. Here's a question that I wanna to pose to both of you because I think it gets at the heart uh, in many respects of what we were trying to address in the Health Equity Action Guide. That question is, how can we close the gap between research policy and practice so that equitable data helps drive equitable policy? Too often we've seen instances where policy seems to be divorced from data and research. So let me pose this question to both of you. How do we close this gap and ensure a greater appreciation uh, for uh, data and evidence informing policy? Education. Education of the legislator, education of uh, the community. Uh, uh, we really need an army of people out here talking about this in a very informed way with with actionable solutions. And that's where you know the health equity and action guide comes from. There's there's you know uh, uh, actionable solutions that each every one of us on this webinar can do uh, but we have to do our part in educating those policy makers and educating the legislators and educating uh those who are opposed to where we where we are i i, I used to always say i will talk to anybody they can we can agree to disagree uh i mean i i there there's no r's and d's as far as i'm concerned uh, it, they, they really are just people needing education and meeting them where they are. And isn't that what America is all about anyway? And so certainly what I would say is let's get informed and then let's activate. I would absolutely agree. Uh, yeah, I could certainly talk about the data perspective more so than the policy, but there's so much uh, capability and we we have the tools available to improve healthcare in this country and delivery of it. Mm -hmm. So if, if just sticking with the data, for for example, we can identify disparities. We, we can use the, the large data sets that are available today uh, to look into this disparities that exist. That's being done. And we can look at access. We can look at outcomes, where we're failing, where we need to do better, where, uh, where we can utilize certain interventions. So we can identify and then use the data that's available. But when you think about it, even from innovation that's happening today. We're talking about personalized medicine. So you can analyze this big data that's available uh, where healthcare providers can tailor specific treatments to patients based on the individual's uh, not only historical uh, upbringing in certain areas or the environment that they're exposed to, but specific genetic and lifestyle uh, and other clinical factors. So you can not only use data to change where people are, but you can actually use it even to be able to predict uh, certain outcomes and prevent 
from those negative outcomes from coming into being. So I, I think that's absolutely the way to go. And, um, and, and it's the push that's being made today. And that's the education piece I'm talking about. The data provides the education. You got, we have to arm ourselves with the data uh, that shows the return on investment because now you can do things quicker. You can be more precise in, in, in identifying the health and equity. That's the that's the education, that's the information I'm referring to. We can use data to get the information, package it in such a way that it's easily to understand by a policymaker, take it to that policymaker, share it with our coalition partners, uh, engage uh, those partners uh, who we haven't typically talked with. I really do think that we need to talk more with those people we're typically not talking with. Because again, uh, they're making pol uh, policies in a vacuum without the data. Exactly. So, um, Melissa Kalele, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. In a few seconds, I'm going to ask you to give us a few closing thoughts uh, to wrap this up. But let me just summarize um, some of the comments and questions that I'm seeing in the chat because we'll, we're not able to get to all of them. I'm seeing a lot of energy and interest, Kalele, in the National Minority Equality Forum coming to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, our friends there have been engaged in a number of equity initiatives. All of us recognize that. Uh, Seattle and King County, Washington are leaders in advancing racial equity and justice. We salute you. Uh, and, and clearly they're asking that uh, uh, NMQF uh, find a way <laughs> to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and then I'm seeing a lot of energy around challenges to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare systems. At the Urban Institute, I'm leading an effort to bring together civil rights organizations, patient and consumer advocacy groups, uh, civil rights litigators, practitioners, theorists, and researchers to help identify what is the research necessary to overturn the Students for Fair Admissions decision, because clearly we all recognize the value of, and importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. This is a matter of life and death, particularly for African-American patients. Uh, and so we're going to advance that argument before the Supreme Court uh, so that the Students for Fair Admissions uh, ruling gets another uh, consideration. And as, as many of you know, uh, the Supreme Court majority in the Students for Fair Admissions ruling uh, suggested that the ban against the consideration of race in higher education admissions might not be applicable to our US military academies because of the value of diversity in military leadership. I would submit that there is a greater and perhaps even more compelling argument for the value of diversity in health professions as a matter of life and death for patients of color. I'll get off my soapbox and invite you each, Melissa and Kalele. First, thank you for your wonderful remarks. Uh, can you take a few seconds to offer closing thoughts for our audience? Well, um, what I would ask is if, if those are in, uh, uh, organizations that are interested to join the, uh, the Pfizer Multicultural Health Equity Collective, because that's we're having these discussions. We're working with the Century Foundation. We're working with NAACP. We're working with the National Urban League. We're, we're working with over 40 plus organizations. So we would really love for you, if you're interested, um, and we'll put a link, uh, Roy, if you will, uh, to uh, outreach uh, to, to the collective. Um, we certainly are always looking for more community-based partners that uh, because we understand you're the trust, trusted voice in the community. And frankly, you know what's going on in your community and what the needs are. So I, 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 I am asking for partnership. Clearly. Thank you, Brian. And uh, 
it, I, I'm actually, I spent some time in the Pacific Northwest. Both my children were born in King County. So I, I was smiling as you're saying, we were invited out to King County. I'll be more than happy to make some connections being based out of Washington, DC, but we're everywhere um, and, and we'll be more than happy to get out there and connect and collaborate. Uh, and as far as just parting words, I, I think, you know, I, I'm cognizant of the you know, the digital divide. I know it's real. And, uh, but what we can do is use it to our advantage in a way that we can make meaningful change. So, uh, and it has the ability and it offers us the capability to be able to use it to close the gap within health inequity. So I think that can be done and it will be done with folks like us. Wonderful. I want to thank the National Minority Equality Forum and Pfizer Incorporated for this wonderful webinar, this wonderful discussion. Uh, attendees, please stay tuned for the wonderful resources that we've promised to share with you. I see a lot of interest in those resources. And uh, as Melissa suggested, partnership is the key here. So I look forward to working with all of you uh, going forward. Thank you so much for participating in this webinar.